You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, a weekly news podcast made possible by members of The Local. It's Thursday the 15th of June when we're recording this, which means the midsummer holiday will soon be upon us and we have some tips on places to enjoy it. We'll also look at how and why Sweden looks set to become the first smoke-free society in Europe. We have updates on Sweden's pathway to NATO. And finally, we'll talk about a shocking mass shooting that left two people dead and what Stockholm can learn from Malmö as it tries to get gun crime under control. I'm Paul O'Mahony and with me on the podcast this week are James Savage in Stockholm and Becky Waterton and Richard Orange in Malmö. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. <laughs> that was James had his most despondent hello of all time. <laughs> hello. <laughs> yeah. Not much before, yeah. It's still hot. It's still not raining. Yeah, yeah, same here. I think a fun thing that did happen, though, is the story that Beyonce is apparently to blame for Sweden's inflation troubles. <laughs> <laughs> How is Beyonce affecting Sweden's inflation? Well, they saw that in May there was like bigger than expected inflation in hotels, restaurants and like cultural activities, I think it is. Right. And that was basically because all every single hotel in Stockholm and anywhere near Stockholm was booked up because Beyonce opened her tour in Stockholm. And also the Swedish krona is really low, which meant that everyone who yeah, is yeah. a big Beyonce fan from around the world flew to Stockholm to watch it, to not get any spoilers. Mm-hmm. So yeah, she's to blame apparently. I saw in our in our group chat that Richard was likening himself to Beyonce and said that you know his hips don't his hips don't lie. But that's Shakira. <laughs> I got it all wrong. Which as, which as somebody pointed out was Shakira. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, other, I mean, because there the the comparison is, I mean, it's uncanny. <laughs> it is. There's a lot of similarities. <laughs> <laughs> I think of you, and I always think of Shakira. Never <laughs> he is a she wolf. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think we better move on. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> this is descending uh, quickly into madness. So we've got um, Midsummer Eve coming up on Friday the 23rd, which means a day off work for most people, coupled with an obligatory lunch of pickled herring and potatoes, followed by a frog dance around a phallic maple. Uh, for anyone new to these traditions or just wanting to learn more, we have an article that we link to in the notes. And now what tends to happen at Midsummer is that anyone with access to a summer house makes a beeline there as soon as the last bit of work is done and it kickstarts the 
the holiday season as Sweden gradually drifts into its holiday sleep mode. But of course, a lot of people, including many of our listeners, don't have the keys to a Swedish summer paradise. So we thought we'd run through some of the best options for how people can best celebrate the midsummer holiday. Uh, Richard, what are your tips? Well, I saw someone write on Twitter that for Swedes, the organised public events that you get are very much a second best option, which kind of means you fail to get invited anywhere or or don't have a beautiful summer house. But actually, I think for foreigners, I think that's a bit snobby and maybe a bit wrong because the the public events give you a lot more chance to access all of the traditions and to see mm. people in traditional costumes and dance around the midsummer stong at, or my stong. I'm not sure which it's supposed to be called. The private events often maybe people won't even bother to go to a midsummer stong there'll just be a barbecue and some snaps and some and some beer and and people will just get mm. wasted so in a way the private events they're good fun they're probably the best party of the year in Sweden but there's not much tradition so anyway i went to a big public one a few years ago in a place called Ovid's Kloster which is near a place called Huerbo which in in Malmo is seen as complete hicksville it's like they all vote sweden democrats and but but i thought it was absolutely fantastic because it was it, the, I, I absolutely loved it it was a whole new part of Sweden that I hadn't seen before so there was there was like a, a stage and then they had dance band stars and some kind of people who were on Melody Festival like 10 years ago and are still touring small events and you know loads of bands doing just uh, stuff that you can dance like um, couples dancing to and people mm. of all ages were just going crazy on the dance floor a bit a bit like a wedding in the UK or in in other parts of the world so, so and, and it was uh, and then you have lots of stands of coffee people selling thermoses and a fun fair and all the kids made midsummer crances which are like these little crowns and help decorate mm. the uh, maypole and put it up so I thought it was fantastic and there were you know probably like more than a thousand people it was it was a big event and you get those all over Sweden so that's one of the types of events so and then there's also smaller ones put on by just basically any village in Sweden will have a small event yeah. in its uh, sports ground or its kind of dance area and those can be really charming and beautiful and if you're in a kind of nice part of Sweden you'll get people playing folk music and a bit of costumes but normally it's just the locals gathering around and drinking coffee and talking and, and dancing around the maple and it can be really beautiful and to do that you could pretty much pick a village at random and just mm. turn up I mean if you don't have a, a link you, if you find somewhere like a, a touristy area in Dalarna or Ustelien or maybe in the one of the islands in the archipelago, there will be something happening and everyone is welcome. And and then and with the bigger events, as well as Ulvids Cluster, you know, th there's a huge one at Skansen in Stockholm, which I've also been to and thought was fantastic because there's all these volunteers who are into sort of history and traditions, pretending they're in the 1920s and dancing around traditional Swedish dances and you can join in and it's 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 fantastic. Is it true that there's always a human sacrifice at the end of the <laughs> <laughs> It hasn't happened at any of the midsummers I've been to, but I've not been here that long yet, so... I don't know. That's what happens in that film, Midsummer, right? I've so no, I think I it. said in last year's podcast when we talked about Midsummer that I hadn't seen it yet and I was definitely going to and I still haven't seen still it. Still haven't seen it, no. <laughs> Before we move on, I want to tell you about another podcast you should listen to. It's produced by our sponsor this week, the Stockholm Dual Career Network, and it's called Stockholm is a State of Minds. 
Each year, brilliant people from all over the world move to Stockholm and Sweden for work, studies, love or as an accompanying partner. If this describes you and you're looking for another podcast to help you navigate Swedish culture and society, this is something you really should be listening to. They even had James on as a guest recently, if you're not getting enough of him here. (laughs) The name again is Stockholm is a State of Minds. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts and it's a great tool if you want to become more Swedish. Now, on to NATO, which we discuss here on the podcast quite regularly. Sweden's chief NATO negotiator, Oskar Stenström, was in Ankara on Wednesday for Sweden's first talks with Turkey since the country's presidential election at the end of last month. Do we know, James, if there was any kind of breakthrough? Can the Swedish government have any hope of getting its application approved in time for the NATO summit in Vilnius next month? Well... Um, the answer to your first question, was there a breakthrough? No. Mm. Um, is there still any hope of getting Sweden's NATO application through in Vilnius next month? Yes, but it's not looking enormously hopeful. So Sweden's chief negotiator, Oskar Stenström, who was in Ankara, says that Sweden has done everything that Turkey asked of it last year. He pointed to the new anti-terror laws that led to the prosecution of a PKK supporter. Mm. And a spokesman for the Turkish government said at the weekend that Sweden had made progress. But then came Erdogan and said that Sweden shouldn't expect a breakthrough at Vilnius. He pointed to the fact that the PKK were demonstrating in Stockholm, or rather PKK supporters, people with PKK flags, had been seen at demonstrations in Stockholm. And he called for Sweden to quash these demonstrations. Now, I don't think you have to have a detailed knowledge of the Swedish Mm. constitution to know that that's not something that you can just click your fingers and Mm. do, or even would want to do. Western democracies tend to have a a fairly liberal view on what people can do at demonstrations if if they're peaceful. Waving flags of um, of organizations that are even even if those organizations are terror listed is not usually a crime or something that, that you can ban sweden has has very strong protection in its constitution for freedom of speech so if erdogan really means this then he is asking sweden to do the impossible mm. however what we also know is that sweden's entry into nato isn't just about sweden or perhaps isn't even primarily about sweden It's about Turkey's relationship with NATO, the rest of NATO. Mm. And, you know, it's possibly also about Turkey's relationship with Russia. So in what might be a helpful move, the US ambassador to NATO implied that Turkey's attempt to acquire F-16 jets might hang on its willingness to accept Sweden into NATO. Um, the, The ambassador pointed to the need for congressional approval, which it was implied was was contingent upon Turkey approving Sweden's accession into NATO. So these things are sort of going on behind the scenes. But it's obviously, with the, with the F-16 question, it's a question, well, who goes first? Does America give the F-16s to Turkey and then mm. Turkey approves, uh, approves, approves Sweden for NATO? Or, you know, is it is it the other way around? How do you make those two things work? Yeah, in, how in do you get those guarantees? How do you get those guarantees to sort of mm. work together? And of course, the other big unknown is what's happening in the background between Turkey and Russia. Yeah. And what sort of pressure is Putin or the Russians putting on Erdogan and Turkey? And you you can bet that some pressure is being applied. 
and and how how much of a factor that is, um, we don't know. So there are there's a, there are lots going on. But the the short answer is that there's certainly no guarantee of Sweden getting into NATO next month. Some experts say they think it's more likely than not that Sweden will get in. And others say they think it's more likely than not that Sweden won't get in. So I'd put it about 50-50 in my inexpert. Okay. Just balancing all the others. Okay, thanks for that roundup. Let's look now at a story doing the rounds recently about how Sweden is on track to become the first smoke-free society in Europe. Becky, can you tell us more about this? When is a country deemed to be smoke-free and why is Sweden leading the way? So essentially a country is deemed to be smoke-free when 5% or less of the population smoke daily. So you can yeah. still have a fair amount of, you know, occasional smokers or party smokers and still reach that goal. The EU has said that member states should aim to be smoke-free by 2040. And it looks like a fair amount of other member states are actually going to miss that goal by quite a long way. Sweden, on the other hand, is on the cusp of hitting the goal this year, 17 years ahead of the rest of the EU. You know, overachievers over mm. here in Sweden. Um, <laughs> and it would actually end up being the first country in the world to be smoke-free, according to this criteria. Yeah. Um, so you asked why, why this has happened. So Partly this is due to a Swedish government goal that the country should be smoke-free by 2025. So, you know, they were kind of already planning to have reached this goal before the EU, before the rest of the EU. And Sweden's also ratified a global convention on tobacco control, which essentially means, you know, like banning the purchase of tobacco by people under 18. Some people are saying that should be extended to 20. Banning cigarettes in certain settings. A few years ago, cigarettes were banned or smoking was banned on outdoor serving areas and in restaurants. The flip side of this, and what is probably one of the biggest reasons behind why Swedes don't smoke as much as other countries in the EU, is that snus is super popular. So snus are these... If you live in Sweden, you've definitely seen them. If you don't live in Sweden, they're these little nicotine pouches that you'll see people putting under their lips. So if you've seen your your Swedish colleagues lifting their lip and putting a weird tea bag thing in there, that's snus. And usage of snus is actually increasing, particularly among young women who are more likely to use what's called white snus, which doesn't contain tobacco, but it contains nicotine. So snus it isn't as dangerous as cigarettes, or at least it doesn't appear to be, but it's not exactly clear whether it's completely safe or not. Although so, although some snus doesn't contain tobacco, nicotine in itself is addictive and it might be behind some health issues. Like it, I think it can raise your blood pressure or your, your, your pulse. So it's not like it's good for you. Although obviously when you've got more people using snus, you avoid secondhand smoke, which is a big contributor to smoking-related deaths worldwide. So it's not necessarily bad news that people are switching over to snus. And, and it's pretty certain that it doesn't cause lung cancer, for example, although, you yeah. know, there's the, the jury's out on perhaps on certain other cancer forms, but there doesn't seem to be any strong, any any convincing sort of like evidence that it causes that it causes cancer. And, exactly. But it's interesting to see the marketing techniques that the snooze companies are using in Sweden now. I was I was out the other the other night at a at a at a, at a, at a big gay party and um, <laughs> and so there, there was there was there was some guy, you know, who appeared to be from some snooze company just handing out free snooze. Really? Yeah. In little rainbow in rainbow coloured um, packaging. Wow. This is the the it's like let's get the gays addicted it's like <laughs> it's, the, it's the pink pouch yeah exactly it's also been marketed as kind of a, a healthy alternative to cigarettes as well in some places absolutely mm. well that's exactly it and philip morris actually recently bought swedish match which is the biggest producer yeah. of snus in sweden so you know i think the international tobacco companies are seeing this as, as smoking rates fall in the whole of the western world they're seeing this as a potential new product the snus is still banned in the eu which is which is kind of crazy apart from in sweden when, when they 
joined the EU, they specifically said, no, we want to be able to sell snus. So only in Sweden, it's the only EU country where you can legally buy snus. Sweden matches constantly campaigning to, to overrule that, not for health reasons. But I mean, I don't know if any of you have gone down the snus route, but I've kind of dabbled in it and it's horribly addictive, I have to say. <laughs> I don't recommend anyone, anyone, I anyone taking it. have friends that can have like a full, can eat like a full, not eat, so you know, you don't eat it, but you know, they can have like a full snus dosser in a day. It's just constantly like replacing these little pouches. Yeah, I started with putting it under my lip, but I, now, I do know I eat it. That, that's how far <laughs> it's gone from me. <laughs> Ew. Uh, that was a joke. I don't snooze at all. <laughs> Great, thanks. Yeah, it is really noticeable how few people smoke in Sweden when you go abroad now. You notice a huge, huge difference. Uh, thanks for that roundup. We're going to turn now to the story topping the Swedish news agenda this week, which is the escalation of gun violence that saw seven people shot and two killed in three separate shooting incidents in the Stockholm area last weekend. The attack that left two people dead took place in the south Stockholm suburb of Farsta, which is actually where I live. And I'll talk in a minute about what the mood is like there. But first, James, can you please fill us in on the details of an attack that the Justice Minister Gunnar Strömer has likened to domestic terrorism? I mean, I think after all of the shootings that we've had in Sweden over the last few years, we thought that they'd lost their capacity to shock. Mm. But this shooting in Farsta, I think, has shocked the whole country and, and, you know, and absolutely shaken the political establishment. So it happened on early Saturday night. It was just after 6pm. Yes. Just after 6pm, so early, early, early evening in, in Farsta, which is a sort of a, a mixed suburb in the, in, in the, in the, south, of, in the south of Stockholm. It's, there are some immigrant communities, but there are lots of, you know, Swedish communities, villas, flats, you know, it's, it's, and this was in the, in the central part of Farsta. A man opened fire in the central part of Farsta and seemed to shoot indiscriminately. He he injured two people and he ended up killing two people, one of whom died um, at the scene and mm. the other and the other of whom died later. The two people who died were a 15-year-old boy called Elias. He was the, he was the one who died at the scene. And then a 43-year-old man, Testaf Mikhail Baraki, died later from his injuries. It's unclear if either of these were the targets, but it seems unlikely. Relatives of Elias said that he was a, just a normal kid, although it did transpire that he had recently had contact or become acquainted with someone who was involved in, in a gang. So far, from what we can tell, there's no, there's no hard evidence to suggest that he was the target. And certainly, Tessaf and Mikhail Baraki, he was um, from, he lived in Eskilstuna. He was a photographer. He'd been in Farsta taking photographs of um, a friend's baby shower and was mm. rushing home to get to the station to get back to Eskilstuna. So it looks like he at least was, was, was um, a, a random victim. And, you know, quite likely that Elias was also a random victim. Police acted quickly. They managed to find the gunman and, um, his, uh, and, and his accomplice. Two men were arrested shortly afterwards after a police chase. And they have been charged with um, two counts of murder and two counts of attempted murder. And they both deny that they are guilty. Mm-hmm. 
Great. Thanks for that summary. So I can jump in here and talk about what the reaction has been like in the area. So even though there have been quite a few shooting incidents in Forst over the past year or so, they've been sort of at arm's length from most people. But psychologically, last weekend's incident was completely different, as you were saying. Like it still has the capacity to shock. Like For example, my wife and children were at the square where the shooting took place just a couple of hours before. And most people I've spoken to, a lot of neighbours have said the same thing because that's what we do on Saturdays, all the little things we didn't get around to sorting out during the week, like getting new shoes for the kids or a bottle of wine or doing the grocery shopping. Everybody goes to Forster Centrum. So the fact that it happened on the main square at the entrance to the Tunnelbana station in the late afternoon meant that pretty much everybody has this sense that they could have been caught up in the crossfire. And kind of sadly, we've got used to police helicopters circling overhead in the last year or two, but machine gun fire on the square, it's like it's almost too much to, to take in. So I'm in some local Facebook groups and it's striking how proud local residents are of the area. I mean, people love Forsta. And I share that feeling as city planners in the 1950s put a lot of thought into making it a livable suburb where you've got everything you need at your doorstep and it's also beautifully situated and we're spoiled for choice when deciding what lake to pick for a swim in the hot weather. I went for a swim last night at a place called Dreviken and there were loads of people out and it was like it felt kind of back to normal actually. So the shock and anger that this place where despite everything most people have felt safe is now this week at least synonymous with arguably the most violent and indiscriminate attack in Sweden's ongoing gun crime epidemic and should maybe mention the the two people who were injured like one of them was a woman in her 60s who was unlocking her bicycle and was just hit by a, a stray bullet the other person injured was a 15 year old boy and it sounds like there were 21 shots fired which is a lot and from from what i've read it was pretty indiscriminate i mean at one point the shooter just turned around and shot like at a, a bus stop where there was a, a according to Aftonblad that there was a 77 year old man sitting there and he saw what was about to happen and ducked under the bench and the, the bus stop was destroyed and he he survived but it was it was sounded absolutely terrifying I can you can understand when you hear these kind of stories why the justice minister has likened it to domestic terrorism because absolutely. it is absolutely terrifying it is at the same time no, so far nobody has managed to nail down a motive i mean if it was no. domestic terrorism it would you know it's that sounds like it's implying that there is a that there was some sort of political motive or but but so far n- no no such motive has been made public at least no exactly so i think he's just saying that in the sense that it you know it's it's designed to spread terror but as you say no no political motive it's presumed to be gang related but yeah we know we know we don't know very much about it yet no Exactly. It's made me think of our interview with um, Diamant Salihu a, a while ago, where he talked about how like, last year, after the chats were intercepted, a lot of the gang leaders were put behind bars and it's left behind this vacuum where these young guns have just stepped in and they're completely disorganised and uh, it's led to much more sort of random attacks like this. Indeed, and I, th- I think it's really worth, if those who haven't listened to Diamant Salihu's uh, interview with, 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 with us in this podcast should, should go back and listen to it. I think it explains quite a lot about the environment in which mm. this is happening. 
Now, I attended a press briefing yesterday at Sariel's Tory in central Stockholm with the Justice Minister Gunnar Strömer, and he was talking about how the government is planning to tackle gun crime in Sweden after last weekend's escalation. And I put it to him that a lot of the government's focus has been on tougher sentencing and extended police powers, such as stop and search zones and anonymous witnesses. But experts and local residents in places like Farsta are pointing to school segregation and defunded child psychiatric care as a big part of the problem when children are recruited to gangs. So I asked if this is something he was looking at as Justice Minister, how to ensure that key services are properly funded to equip children with the resilience and resources they need to stay out of the clutches of criminal gangs? Most certainly, yes. Uh, I don't quite uh, uh, agree on the description that we are, uh, uh, how should I say, that we're just looking at the problem with one eye. Most certainly, we are also having a Uh, a strategy on the repressive side regarding sentences, tools to law enforcement, uh, new methods to prevent and uh, crime and, and, and also um, solve uh, crimes when they have occurred. However, I would say that uh, there is a new focus on the cooperation between law enforcement, schools, uh, social services, both uh, make it easier for them to cooperate. We're, for instance, looking now at legislation to make it easier to share information between schools, social services and police so they can work locally, very close to uh, the kids that are uh, in the risk zone coming into criminality. We're also changing other rules, making it possible for social services to come in with uh, more uh, serious measures, uh, also towards younger kids, also in a situation where parents uh, don't agree on this. Uh, and then in terms of resources, in a tough situation with high inflation, all parts of society struggles with the economy. Uh, however, this is also a way to secure that we will come out on the other side stronger with money that is still has a high value and of course we need to invest in schools and social services in the long run in order to from all sides of society prevent kids from getting into criminal gangs. I also asked the Justice Minister about a new study from the National Council for Crime Prevention which suggests with some provisos that a method used by Malmö to tackle gun crime and bomb attacks has been successful and six other municipalities are now also using the Group Violence Intervention Strategy, as it's called, which Richard is going to tell us more about in a minute. Uh, The previous government earmarked some resources to facilitate the spread of this strategy to more municipalities. And I asked if the current government planned to do the same and encourage Stockholm, for example, to follow Malmö's lead. Uh, I have also uh, seen uh, the results of these studies and I think it's uh, very, very good that we can see that a strategic and long-term commitment uh, also pays off. Uh, However, I think it's also very important that local local municipalities and and, uh, police forces also locally can decide how to apply this method and other methods 
given the circumstances uh, in the municipality, uh, uh, so sort of on the local level. So I don't intend uh, from the government side uh, to well, take any particular measures given these results. However, continue to support uh, the cooperation between municipalities and, and the police uh, and law enforcement to uh, keep applying methods that, well, empirically seems to work. That was the Justice Minister Gunnar Strummer. And as we've mentioned, the shootings that took place last weekend were all in the Stockholm area. But if we turn back the clock a few years, Malmö used to be seen as the gun crime capital of Sweden. How did Malmö get to grips with its gun problem? And are there lessons to be learned for the rest of the country, Richard? Well, I wouldn't say that Malmö has got to grips with its gun problem because shootings still happen with a relatively depressing regularity but the number of monthly shootings so going back to this um the study you mentioned on the group violence intervention strategy um mm. it's done by two researchers at Malmö university and they, they found that the number of monthly shootings since the strategy was put into place is about half what it was in the two years leading up to it which which covered yeah. the worst period in Malmö, which was about 2017, 2018, when there were loads of shootings, loads of bombings, and it was all connected to some sort of turf war between different gangs. But Malmö pioneered this group intervention strategy in Sweden. And the, the general and it's, it's a strategy that's been very successful in combating violent gang crime in the US. So it was pioneered in Boston, and I think they reduced the amount of homicides by, I think, 60%. And then other cities in the US have reduced the amount of homicides it, especially in, in gangs by like 30% or 20% or 40%, you mm. know, but significant reductions that are attributed to this strategy. And the basic idea is that you identify who the gang members are. So you do a lot of research. And even if mm. you don't have enough evidence to charge them, you then call them all into a meeting. And a lot of these people, even if they don't have a, an active case, they, they are still in contact with the probation services for past cases. So you, you've got a reason to call them in and, and you call them in. And, and I think Malmo did that in 2018 in its old stadium building. And there, they're stuck down in a kind of lecture theatre and they, they get lectured by the mothers of people who've been killed by in shootings and, and social workers who offer them help to get away from gang crime. And then also the police come in and say, look, if you continue, we know who you are. If you continue, yeah. we're going to make your life difficult in all sorts of ways. We're going to stop you almost every day. We're going to check your car. We're going to visit your parents. We're going to talk to your other relatives and, and basically give them a, as much incentive as possible to stop doing what they're doing. And it's definitely been partially successful in Malmö. But the researchers said that, that since the trial period ended, which was 2020 in February, just before the pandemic, the police have only been, haven't really given it the resources that the people on the on the social services side want wanted. You know, and so mm. often police haven't turned up to meetings with civil society groups or they haven't had any officers to take part in the social side of it. And also... In 2020, summer of 2022, when there were a lot of gun shootings, quite a, there was a sort of a bad period for gun shootings in Malmö. There weren't any calls, call-ins. And the reason for that is that the police had stopped doing the intelligence. They'd stopped kind of 
pro- providing the social workers with a list of who who the the current worst gang criminals are. And the police say that's mm. because they don't know because the anchor chat, you know, because a lot of people have been put behind bars. It's it's can be quite difficult to work out exactly who's replaced them and how they relate to each other. And the police argue that you know if you call in people for these stern talks who aren't actually involved in gangs or who aren't responsible for certain attacks and you then punish them, then you lose the confidence of the people that you're trying to influence. So it would be counterproductive. Anyway, I spoke to Felipe Estrada, who's professor of criminology at Stockholm University, and he said that this was the most promising action you can do here and now that will have an impact within months rather than years to reduce crime because you're t- going directly to the people who are carrying out these shootings and you're working in a very focused way on them. And it's better than just trying to arrest them all and throw them all in jail. It's forward looking. You know, if, if you throw someone in jail, they've already done the crime, whereas this is actually preventing someone doing a crime who might do it in the coming months. So it's actually he, he's very positive about it. But there is some controversy. So the police aren't convinced that this is the reason for the reduction in crime because there's also been the pandemic, which broke out just after the pilot for this uh, project. And also the police launched something called Operation Rimfrost uh, right in the middle of the pilot scheme, which the researchers are really annoyed about because it makes it impossible (laughs) to evaluate. And and, and Operation Rimfrost was, was basically they brought in police from all over Sweden and massively increased the amount of police officers in Malmö. And while Operation Rimfrost was going on, and, and this was something the researchers looked at in their study because they said that when Operation Rimfrost was going on, yes, the amount of shootings declined a lot. It was the, the biggest, it was the time when there was the biggest drop in shootings. But the moment Operation Rimfrost was stopped, then they shot up again. So what the researchers argue is that, that the kind of targeted special operation that the police love doing because they can, you know, drive into a suburb with like 40 police cars and, you know, it feels like they're doing a lot of action. And politicians love it as well because it feels like you're taking hold of the problem. But what the researchers argue is that, that the gangsters just lie low while it's happening and then right. and then jump back and do exactly what they were doing before the moment afterwards. Whereas something like this group violence intervention, that gets them in the long term. They think, do I really want all of this attention from the police? Mm. Wouldn't it be nice to, you know, start a new life in Hesselholm or something, you know, a, a long way from Malmö and have a relaxed... Um, much <laughs> and, and not be at risk of being shot in the next mm. s- six months. So, yeah, it, it, it has been quite successful. It was actually quite depressing speaking to this criminologist, Philippa Estrada, because he said, the, you know, the, the evidence from all of the research criminologists have been doing for like 50 years is unequivocal, which is that doing increased stop and search, having a massive police presence, throwing people in jail for a long time is often counterproductive and doesn't really help to reduce gang crime mm. because these kids are they're doing stuff they know they could be shot they could be killed and so they're not going to be influenced by oh you might get an extra two years longer in prison all mm. that does is gum up the criminal justice system so that you can't you've got no chance of doing any kind of re- rehabilitation because you've got you know two people in each cell and you don't have enough staff to let them go out and um, you know do some exercise and, and you, you, it's, it's completely counterproductive and it, I think it's quite depressing talking to the experts that Sweden, which is normally a country that in most things acts on the evidence, 
in this is going completely against the evidence. And what he said was the by far the best way of combating gang crime in the long term is to invest a lot in schools in problem areas. And the government mm. is cutting back on school funding across Sweden. So, you know, by not giving the municipalities enough enough money. So the whole reaction to these horrible events in Farsta are going to make it worse rather than better. So it's depressing. And it's from both sides of the political spectrum. Social Democrats have exactly the same proposals, really, as the moderates. Yeah, I mean, Yimmy Orkeson, he described things like the programmes like the the one in Malmö as um, saftokbullar. You invite uh, criminals in for juice and bums. Uh, and and you know I think that's that you know he's 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 quite cleverly characterised um, these kinds of sort of more softly softly or, or, or you know the actions that don't involve draconian sort of policing as just uh, as kind of just playing nice with criminals yeah and and if the evidence is that they're they're effective that's that's unfortunate because it's that seems to be the sort of prevailing opinion in Swedish politics right now it's mm. also they're doing it because that's what voters want to hear. Yeah, no, yeah. and it's the same. It's the same issue in every country in the world. And, and the only way to tackle it as a, as, a, as a politician is to say, oh, we're going to throw them in prison and throw away the key and then, and then actually fund programmes that are the Saft and Buller option. You know, I mean, <laughs> you, you have to have two faces. You can't win as a politician. You can't get the backing of voters by being soft on crime. Are you surprised to hear from Gunnar Strömer that he's not going to allocate more resources to something like GVI? I mean, not at all, because as you say, it's it's like if he does, then he he, he has the risk of Yumi Orkerson going, why are you spending all the money taking these people and giving them fika? Uh, yeah, people are always hmm. going to say, use the money to hire more police officers, use the money to, to, re- to build more prisons. You know, people are always going to have that counter argument. When incidents like last weekend's multiple shootings occur, it's easy to lose perspective. Uh, But Becky, you've been looking this week at how safe Sweden is from an international perspective. And if we start with gun crime, how does Sweden compare to other countries? So specifically on gun crime, it's not great. Sweden is the only European country where fatal shootings have risen significantly since 2000, where Sweden has gone from being a country with one of the lowest levels of gun crime to one of the highest. To kind of put some figures on that, between 2017 and 2021, Sweden had around 0.4 to 0.5 deadly shootings per 100,000 people. So the EU average over the same period was 0.16. So that's like Mm. less than half. Last year, that number in Sweden shot up to 0.65 deaths per 100,000 inhabitants, although most gun crime in Sweden is, according to the Swedish National Council for Crime Prevention, mainly concentrated to major cities, so-called vulnerable areas and the open drug trade. And it's more likely to affect young men with women rarely affected. Although, as we saw in Farsta, that doesn't mean that it never does affect people outside of these Mm. kind of these kind of environments. So if we use the figures from 2022, Sweden comes second with 0.65 deaths per 100,000 inhabitants ahead of Mm. France, who had 0.5 deaths per 100,000 inhabitants. India and Italy were both on around 0.3, Germany on 0.14, the UK on 0.05, China on 0.03, and Japan on 0.01. The US, however, is way ahead of everyone else on 3.77. So that's that's Mm. a lot higher than than Sweden. Uh, So Sweden still has quite a way to go before it overtakes the US, on gun crime at least. Yeah. And and more generally, um, what other criteria did you look at for the article and, and how does Sweden fare there? Yeah. So gun crime doesn't really give you the whole picture of whether a country is safe or not. So I also looked at kind of the number of homicides per 100,000 people. So like the number of people killed kind of 
mm. overall all kinds of crime, as well as other violent crime like robberies. Um, there's more detail in the article, so I won't go into all of it here. But on homicides in general, Sweden had 1.61 per 100,000 people, which puts it 40th out of 163 countries. So there were right. 39 countries with fewer homicides than Sweden. This is kind of in the middle of the Nordic countries. Sweden's kind of, on most indicators, Sweden's the, the worst of the Nordic countries. But exactly on homicides, it's in the middle, with Norway right. and Denmark having fewer homicides and Iceland and Finland having more. I also looked at the Global Peace Index, which kind of ranks every country in the world on 23 different indicators to determine how peaceful they are. Sweden came 26 out of 163, so it's the 26th most peaceful country in the world, mm. um, which is pretty good. You know, Sweden's about average compared to European countries and the G7 countries, both on this Global Peace Index, but also kind of on specific categories like level of perceived criminality, number of homicides per 100,000 people, kind mm. of violent crime. It, they all, it kind of was middle of the pack. But like I said, Sweden's level of gun crime is higher than in comparable countries, uh, with the exception of the US, and higher than the EU average. So like, essentially, if you want the kind of quick summary, Sweden is not among the most dangerous countries in the world by any means, or even the most dangerous in Europe on most indicators. But ultimately, whether you feel safe or not depends on so many different factors. You know, where you live, who you are, your gender, your sexual orientation, who you associate with, all of the, even how you look, all of those things can play into to whether you feel safe and whether you are safe in a specific country. Great. Thanks a lot for that, Becky. It was a really, really good article and we'll put a link in the notes. That's all for this week. Do please give us a review or a rating wherever you listen or maybe tell a friend who you think might enjoy the podcast. Uh, thank you for listening. Our panellists this week were Richard Orange, Becky Waterton and James Savage. Our sound engineer is Reese Edwards. I'm Paul O'Mahony and we'll be back again next week with an all new episode of Sweden in Focus. Until then, take care. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.